Oh, oh, oh! Ben! Vince from Brain's World. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. You are listening live to Brandon's World here on this Thursday, December 22nd, 2022. For those of you that have been long listeners of the podcast, you know that last year during this time, I took a look at the NFL awards and my predictions for the 2021 NFL season, and we broke them down over some wonderful Christmas music. This year, due to my illness, which I've had an, an ear infection that has kept me in bed for a couple of days, along with a sinus infection that I'm still trying to get over and I'm still coughing over, which you will hear a little bit of throughout this podcast, unfortunately, but I decided we needed to go bigger. This Brandon's World Christmas special for 2022 needed to be one of the biggest episodes in the history of this podcast. For those of you that don't know, for the first time this year, in the four-year history of Brandon's World, I was able to produce at least one podcast every single month. It's the first time we've ever done that. I'm very proud of that accomplishment. You know, we may have been taking a break for, you know, a couple weeks here and there, but there was always some sort of content to produce. And I'm looking forward to a magical 2023. But again, because I have not been able to record for the last couple weeks, I decided we needed to make this Christmas special huge. So not only are we going to be doing what we did last year, and that is going to be going over here in a couple of minutes, the NFL Awards for 2022, my predictions and all that stuff. But you're going to be hearing interviews, interviews that I had scheduled for Thanksgiving, which I couldn't even record then because I was sick way back then with my good buddy Enzo Orlando from Ask the Mike Sports Talk and the Bet the Mac podcast. My good buddy from Believe One Media, Josh Unger. You're going to be hearing my thoughts on the WWE Slammy Awards. And obviously they used to do that back in the day. They're not doing that anymore. But I thought let's give our awards for WWE throughout this year and I'm going to be making my predictions for what will happen in sports in 2023. Plus, you will hear my week 16 NFL predictions like we used to every single week before I got to this illness. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy. I hope you and yours have a wonderful Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever you celebrate. Have a wonderful holiday. And we're going to kick this special off. Now, this is going to be in line with, with my the way the show used to be constructed back in my radio days. We're going to have multiple segments. Again, you're going to be hearing NFL awards, WB slammies, interviews. It's going to be a really fun time. So I hope that you enjoy. And without further ado, let's go ahead and turn on not the NFL music. Let's go ahead and turn on that Christmas music. Because we are going to be going over my predictions for who will win the NFL awards in 2022. Starting things off with the MVP award. Now, in my opinion, there are three candidates for this award. Number three, who I think has a chance to win it, but I think it will be unlikely, will be Joe Burrow, the quarterback of the Cincinnati Bengals. I told you, you know, earlier going into this season, when the Bengals were, were 0-2 and everybody was trying to write the Bengals off, I said, Joe Burrow, had appendix surgery right after the Super Bowl. He reportedly did not take a snap in a real game or even practice from the Super Bowl to week one of the NFL season against the Steelers. And plus, with a whole new offensive line, that's why Burrow struggled. 
the first two weeks of the season. I said the Bengals were going to get back. I said that they were going to right the ship. Since starting 2-3, and three, they have only watched one game as of this recording, which is right before the Tampa Bay Buccaneers game. And I think Burrow, if he plays the way he has, and he gets the Bengals to overtake Baltimore, which is now a real possibility with the injury to Lamar Jackson, if the Bengals overtake the Ravens in the AFC North, I think Joe Burrow <coughs> excuse me, has a compelling case to win MVP. Number two, I have Patrick Mahomes. Now, I think Patrick Mahomes is having a worldish season. I think he, him and the Chiefs have had a better season than maybe we have all predicted, and I think that that is why he has a good chance to potentially win the MVP award as well. But I would put Jalen Hurts over Patrick Mahomes because everybody expects what Patrick Mahomes to do. You know, everybody expects Patrick Mahomes to put up Patrick Mahomes-like numbers. Everybody expects the Mahomes that we have seen this year out of Kansas City. The jump that we have seen from Jalen Hurts going from, you know, year two to year three. It's like the jump we saw Josh Allen go from year two to year three. And yes, A.J. Brown, the addition there on the offense helped a lot. But Jalen Hurts has improved in the deep ball. He's improved his short throw, his medium throw. And he only has three interceptions up to the date of this recording. And that, to me, is why he is the MVP. He's on the best team. He is leading the best team. He is making elite throws. He is running the football. He is not turning the ball over. And he is turning the Eagles offense into points. He is very poised. And he is putting up Patrick Mahomes-like numbers. And we did not expect Jalen Hurts. To put up Patrick Mahomes like numbers, which is why again I would put Jaywin over Mahomes. I think Jaywin hurts at the end of the regular season. Now it may affect him that Mahomes has to play, you know, one or two more games to secure the number one seed. And you know, Jaywin hurts may not because the Eagles will already have the number one seed in the NFC. So maybe Mahomes will have the better stats. But again, I think Patrick Mahomes. It will be number two. Jalen Hurts will be number one. And if Joe Burrow shockingly gets the Bengals in the number one seed, if Patrick Mahomes stumbles or something like that, and the Bengals went out, Burrow has a chance to win MVP. Up next, the Offensive Player of the Year. For this one, number three candidate for me is Justin Jefferson. He is an absolute stud of a wide receiver. He has transformed, in my opinion, the Vikings offense this season. He has made Kirk Cousins into basically the quarterback that we see today, which is the quarterback dominating the NFC North. Number two for me is Patrick Mahomes. And this is, you know, an indictment of the MVP a little bit. I think if Mahomes does not get MVP with his numbers, he has a real chance to win Offensive Player of the Year. You could even put Joe Burrow and Jay with Ertz in that category. I always think that the, the MVP, you know, white candidate, if you will. I always think that if they don't get it, they have a great chance to win the Offensive Player of the Year. But my number one choice for Offensive Player of the Year would be Tyreek Hill of the Miami Dolphins. Now, I do not have Tua Tagovailoa on this list because Tua has struggled over the last couple weeks as we've seen passing the ball. But nobody, in my opinion, maybe outside of Jalen Hurts, has made a bigger jump this year than Tua. But I'm going to put Tua's success more on the addition of Tyreek Hill. Why? Because Tyreek Hill has a chance to get to 2,000 receiving yards this year, which is very rare. I think it may have only been done one time by Jerry Rice or maybe Cooper Cup or Calvin Johnson, uh, but it's very rare 
And Tyreek Hill is just an absolute monster. He's getting open short. He's getting open medium. He's getting open deep. I think Tyreek Hill is an absolute stud. I think he's changed the Dolphins offense. You know, Tua has learned what Patrick Mahomes learned all those years, which if Tyreek Hill's running down the field, if he's one-on-one, -on -one, no matter if he looks covered, you're going to throw to him because he's going to be able to outrun the defense. The Dolphins' explosive plays have been a lot due to Tyreek Hill because of his speed and, again, just the fact that he's going to be able to put up 2,000 yards. That, to me, is the Offensive Player of the Year. Defensive Player of the Year, ranking in at number three. This is a long shot, and I really think it's a two-team race. But Darius Slay, somewhat of a lockdown corner this year, and he has a revamp. Which is why I do believe that Darius White could have a chance as a dark horse defensive player of the year candidate. Number two, I got Nick Bosa. I mean, we all seen what he's done this year for the San Francisco 49ers. He is a wrecking ball. And I really believe it is a tie race between Nick Bosa and Micah Parsons from the Dallas Cowboys. You would have an argument for me on, on either one of those. I would tend to lean more Micah Parsons just because he winds up in more positions. He winds up at linebacker and defensive end. He can get after the passer. Everybody expected Nick Bosa and the San Francisco 49ers defense to be good. Not Maybe not this great, but to be really good. I don't think anybody expected the Dallas defense to be as good as it is. And a lot of that has to do with Micah Parsons wrecking havoc. San Francisco has defensive line talent all over the place in their defensive line. Dallas does too, uh, obviously with, with DeMarcus Lawrence and George Armstrong and a few of those guys. But they're not bigger names, I would argue, than, than Armstead and some of those other guys that San Francisco has. San Francisco has obviously spent resources more for Trump X on their defensive line, which might would edge it a little bit to Michael Parsons. Though Nick Bosa over the last couple weeks has certainly taken over and trying to outpace Micah to win that Defensive Player of the Year award. Now, Offensive Rookie of the Year. This was really hard. You know, there hasn't really been. Usually we have a wide receiver that completely pops or a running back that completely pops. Now, Brees Hall was one of them for the Jets, you could say, but then he got injured. But I really think that this Offensive Rookie of the Year award is going to go to Garrett Wilson of the New York Jets. I really couldn't think of anybody else. You know, Garrett Wilson, no. Chris Olave, no. You know, Javante Williams for Denver, no. Brian Robinson for Washington, no. You know, none of the quarterbacks, you know, have really popped this year. So it was really hard to think of an offensive player to win the Rookie of the Year award. And I think Garrett Wilson has been the most consistent rookie wide receiver, which is why I think he's also had some big games. We saw what he did against the Bears a couple weeks ago with Mike White with those two touchdowns, which is why I would give the nod here to Garrett Wilson on the New York Jets. As for Defensive Rookie of the Year, I think it's down to two people. I think it's really Aiden Hutchinson and Sauce Gardner. Though Sauce Gardner has become a complete lockdown corner, he has changed the Jets' defense. He's one of the reasons why the Jets' defense is as good as it is this year. And while Aiden Hutchinson has made some splash plays for Detroit, the Lions are still last in the week in passing defense, which is why I think this is a really easy pick here to go with Sauce Gardner. I think the Jets have the Offensive Rookie of the Year and the Defensive Rookie of the Year. Now, Coach of the Year. This was a tough one. You can make a case for a lot of different coaches. 
you know, you can make a case for Brian Dable, who I don't have in the top three because the Giants have slid out on whatever. You can make a case for Ron Rivera and what he's done in Washington. I think number three is going to be Pete Carroll. And I know Seattle is sliding out of the mix or whatever, like I said, but just like Brian Dable, nobody expected the Seahawks, just like nobody expected the Giants, to be anywhere near where they're at this season. I thought Seattle was going to get the number one pick in the draft. And Geno Smith, who I think will be the comeback player of the year, Geno Smith has played triple better than what Russell Wilson has played, you know, over the course of this season. Um, number two, I think, obviously, is Robert Sala. Nobody expected the Jets to be as good as they are this year. But maybe you can call this a homer pick, if you will, but I do think the number one pick of the coach of the year this year should be Nick Sirianni for the Philadelphia Eagles. Listen, I thought the Eagles were going to win their division. I thought they'd win somewhere between 10 and 12 games this year. I really like the additions Howie Roseman made on both sides of the ball, both offensively and defensively, and I thought the Eagles were the best team in the NFC East. But I did not think that they would be the best team in football. I did not think they would have the best offense. I did not think that they would have the best defense. I did not think Jalen Hurts would be an MVP like candidate. So for that reason, I'm going to go in and give it to Nick Sirianni. Comeback player of the year. I just mentioned this. You know, there's a lot of talk. It could be Brandon Graham for the Philadelphia Eagles. Brandon Graham at 34 years old, coming off a torn ACL, having a career season. That's a really good story. But Geno Smith, who nobody expected to be this good for the Seattle Seahawks. We all thought maybe they'd move on to True Walk, and we all thought Seattle would be tanking for the number one pick. And yet, here they are. Here they are, still competing with the playoffs. They have seven wins, and their pick is going to be lower than Denver's. We all thought Denver was a potential Super Bowl contender with Russell Wilson. Denver, currently at the time of this recording, has the number two pick in the 2023 NFL Draft. It just goes to show you that life comes at you fast, and Geno Smith is just an amazing story that definitely deserves comeback player of the year. And the final NFL award that I'm going to be giving out is the play of the year. Let's go ahead and roll the play. Mac Hollins out on defense. He's all the way back. And Stevenson is inside the 30, flips it back. Stanford band nowhere in sight. Uh Uh-oh, it's picked off. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, no. Unbelievable. Oh, wow. Incredible. Chandler Jones takes it in and wins the game for the Raiders. So, obviously, that play that happened Sunday with the New England Patriots and the last play of the game, was the play of the year in the NFL. Now, I thought no play in the National Football League this year could top the Justin Jefferson catch that he had against the Buffalo Bills in that 4th and 15 when Kirk Cousins threw it up there and Justin Jefferson made what the announcer Joe Davis said at the time was the catch of his life. I thought that for sure was going to be the shoe for play of the year, and as a matter of fact, I recorded that before I am recording this right now. But, that play Sunday with the Patriots and the Las Vegas Raiders, the lateral, the Ramondre Stevenson, the, the Jacoby Myers throwing the ball backwards, everything about it just felt so weird. I mean, if you're in New England, why not just take a knee there and, 
go to overtime. I will never understand it. That was not classic New England. That was the most un-New England-like thing you'll ever see. That was one of the most improbable wins you'll ever see in a game where Vegas almost blew the game after dominating both of the first half. That was absolutely incredible. And without a doubt, that play will be remembered as one of the most bizarre plays in the history of the history of the National Football League. And with that, now that we got the NFL Awards underway, you are now going to hear a wonderful interview I conducted with my good buddy, Pez the Mike co-host, and Beth the Mad co-host, Enzo Orlando. Me and Enzo obviously date way back to our days at Black Score Radio. We talk all things NFL, including Deshaun Watson, the Browns, the Bengals, the Ravens, everything AFC North, you know, Aaron Rodgers, Tua, Jaywood Ertz, MVP, anything you can think of, Russell Wilson, Tom Brady, you know, everything NFL. We also dove into the new MLB rule changes and why they will not affect the game as much as Ron Manfred thinks it will. Plus, we talk a little Cleveland Cavaliers and the college football playoff. Why Enzo thinks TCU deserve to be in the college football playoff and why I made the argument to Los Alabama should have been in that college football playoff. That is coming up right now. Welcome back here to the Brandon's World Christmas Special. And now we have with us today the one and only Enzo Orlando from Pass the Mike Sports Talk and Beth the Mac. Enzo, it's been a long time, man. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Brandon. Uh, it's been a while since I've been on your show. I know you were on my show like uh, back in like February during the Super Bowl time, but you know it's good to be back on the, your show. As you mentioned, you know I'm part of Pass the Mic and uh, my new podcast, Beth the Mac. You know we're we're focusing on betting on games in the Mid American Conference and football and basketball. I mean, we just uh, finished up football season. Already put in our picks for ball games. So check out our latest episode that dropped yesterday and then uh, we're going to be getting in the basketball soon so looking forward to be doing more of that yeah and and so you know without further ado let's go ahead and let's jump right into it because this nfl offseason was absolutely a wild circus and you had these top receivers like Devonta adams and Tyree kill switching teams you know you had brady we all thought david bay was going to come out they were going to assert their dominance potentially brady get to another super bowl with tampa but, I mean, this season, it's been, you know, obviously the Eagles was one of the top teams in the league. Buffalo, Kansas City, you got San Francisco, who's now in their third-string quarterback with uh, Brock Purdy. But, you know, for you, what has been the biggest surprise, good in a way, and the biggest bad surprise for you out of all the teams in the league that you're heading into this season? I mean, honestly, I would have to say just the way the Buccaneers have been playing, I mean... You know, Brady announced he was going to retire at the end of January. And then he did the home life for a month and then uh, decided to come back and play football. And then, you know, they add Julio Jones to the team. I mean, he's not the same Julio Jones he was with the Falcons, but still, he's still a top receiver to have a good replacement of them from uh, Antonio Brown, who he is never going to get back in the league anytime soon. But then you're just seeing how this team is just as bad as the Cleveland Browns and the Browns beat them two weeks ago at home and they're still maintaining the top of the division just to show how bad the uh, NFC South is 
And but I think a lot of it has to do with like just how the way Brady's been playing. He's going through a lot at home with his divorce from his wife, so that's a lot on him. And then it's just you know his expectations and what he wants, and plus him not being the same quarterback he was five, ten years ago. I mean, he's forty-five years old. I mean, no other NFL quarterbacks ever played that old, and he still thinks he can do it. So he's got that in his mind. So I did say Tampa's been thriving. Uh, same thing with the L.A. Rams, the defending Super Bowl champions. Uh, and obviously, uh, injuries to Matt Stafford is really hurting them. And, you know, not having Cooper Cup around either is hurting them as well. But, I mean, that last week game that Baker Mayfield c- comes to L.A. right after only be there for, like, two days and then leads them to a game-winning drive against the Raiders. I mean, that was pretty amazing. But, you know, just a warrants all just they're on a very bad Super Bowl hang- hangover. Uh, compared to the Bengals, everyone thought they were on a bad Super Bowl hangover to start out, but they're now kind of back into it, and I think they're going to be the ones to uh, take care of the AFC North uh, unless the Ravens can get Lamar Jackson back in the next two years. He's already reported to be out for this Saturday's game against Brown, and they're going to have Tyler Huntley back, but if they get Jackson back next week, I, I think it'll be them, and uh, Cincinnati can be him for the AFC North. Yeah, Baltimore is such, such a weird team, and so I've been saying all year long, there's a lot to like about Baltimore. I mean, outside of one game, you know, when Lamar Jackson was starting, they literally won by double digits in every single game this year. That's obviously that Baltimore is not a bad football team. Actually, Baltimore should be, if you go out that staff, one of the most dominant teams in football. They just don't know how to finish games. Uh, Cincinnati, on the other hand, I told people when they started 0-2, I said, don't panic. You know, Joe Burrow did not take a snap after, after the Super Bowl. Joe Burrow did not take a snap until week one because he had the, the appendix injury. And then, of course, they, they had all of those offensive line issues the first two weeks of the season. And you're seeing now, obviously, Cincinnati get back on a roll. But sticking in the AFC North, man, I, I got to ask you, you touched on it briefly at the start of, of this interview today. But, you know, going into the season, I had said when it was announced that Deshaun Watson was going to be suspended 11 games, I had said the Brown season is a wash. It doesn't matter what they do with Jacoby Brissett. It doesn't matter what happens when Deshaun Watson comes back. I am not evaluating this Browns team, really, until 2023. Um, you know, it's too late in the season. There's too many scheme changes that I think are going to take place in the coaching staff. There's just way too many unknowns. This season was doomed from the start. But I watched the Browns. And, you know, I, I hear all the metrics, and Pro Football Focus says that they're one of the best teams in the league, and they have the third best offense and all, and all of this. But I'm sorry. When when I watch the Browns this year, Enzo, just something feels off about them. And there's a lot of talk, obviously, Savansky, Coach of the Year in 2020. But ever since, you know, that was the Kansas City in the divisional round, the Browns have not been the same team. Kevin Savansky has not been the same coach. And it just feels like, even with the Deshaun Watson, you know, addition now, and I think he's an upgrade on the field over Baker Mayfield, say what you want of him off the field. It just feels like this whole Browns team needs a reset. And I don't know if it's coaching. I don't know if it's personnel. What's your take on this Browns season? Uh, I mean, in this season, I'm, I'm with you on that. Ever since the whole Watson suspension for 11 games, yeah, this season was pretty much over. Uh, but, of course, the whole local media, you know, overanalyzing every move by Stefanski and his staff this season and what they're doing and how, oh, there is still a chance for playoffs. You know, 
you know, even though we lost that last second to the Jets that one game, or even though um, we didn't strategize well against uh, the Bengals, even though, yeah, it's right now like a 0.4% us making it in, unless we just beat Baltimore on Sunday. So, honestly, I think the direction, everyone's just overthinking it, overanalyzing it. I mean, a lot of people are saying, hey, we want Joe Woods fired. This defense has been terrible. I mean, this defense is one of the top high-paying defenses in the NFL, but you always have Miles Garrett never stepping up when matters, when it matters, and you got Denzel World Ward who's always hurt. Same thing with Greedy Williams. Uh, and a lot of these guys, you know, tendency to you know really not focus on the game, care more about just getting that check and going out partying. I, it, it's just been a whole mess. I very unsure about uh, Stefanski's career as the Browns head coach. I don't know if he'll be back next season. I, I hope he does. I think he's a one of the best head coaches we've had in like a long time but I just think some changes need to be done on coaching staff maybe Joe Woods has to go maybe Alex Van Bell has to go I mean there's a lot of things that really need to change and then just you know having an owner like Jimmy Hazard who's just too much involved with the team I think that's one thing that's really always hurt this franchise and I don't think the Browns should really restart I don't think Andrew Barry the general manager should go I do think D. Podesta should go because he's not really ever around the team or anything. He's all the way out in San Diego, California. Where the weather's always gorgeous, unlike here in Cleveland, where it's today it was gray all day and rain. And and, and he just seems to like go off all these uh, math analytic numbers. And I there's like something I read. It said like the Browns have the number one analytic part in the NFL. And okay, good, but. They said a lot of the plays have worked. All right, well, keep people on the analytic department, but don't have like deep that sort of don't have them really making all the, the you know the play callings suggestions and all that and strategizing i mean you gotta have a lot of football minds and football it can't be all a bunch of these people who got these math degrees from yale and harvard so enzo you said something really interesting to me and that was you mentioned that stefanski was one of the best head coaches the brand ever had the reason why i say that's interesting is because over the past couple of weeks i've been doing a lot of thinking and in my mind, I think that 2020 was such a successful season for the Browns, right? It, it was their best season, you could say, since 2007, but really it was their best season in 20 plus years. That there are some fans that 2020 was the only winning season, really, they have ever seen the Browns ever have. And so because of that, when you saw Baker Mayfield have – and an eight-game incredible stretch without Odell Beckham Jr. When you had Kevin Fansky win the coach of the year that year, you want to hold on to that because you're not used to a way a good football team plays and a way a good football team acts. The top teams in this league now, the Buffaloes, the Kansas Cities, you know, the, the San Francisco's, every year, yeah, they may have Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes, so they may have Judge, Judge Allen and Sean McDermott, but every single year, they adapt and they make changes to their personnel. And that's one thing the Browns have not done. They have regressed every single year since that 2020 season. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, nothing's really has changed. Stefanski's kept the same staff around since uh, that 2020 season. No one's really changed. So, yeah, he does need to make some moves on figuring out uh, who they need to get rid of and who they need to take in as to be like, you know, maybe next defensive coordinator or special teams or receivers, running backs, O-line, D-line coach. I mean, there's a lot 
they really need to change. I just think it's the environment. Because it feels like if, if you fire your head coach or GM, you're just restarting the whole process over again. And it you're in a situation where who do you want to get rid of, Stefanski or Barry? Honestly, I would say you would get rid of Stefanski and have Andrew Barry find a guy. Because if you remember, Stefanski was hired before Andrew Barry, and then Andrew Barry was hired. So Andrew Barry didn't really have a lot of say in his head coach. Do we know if they're working well together? We really don't know. We don't know much behind the scenes, but from the way it looks right now, it doesn't look like how they're doing things is not working. Yeah, and you know, I do think that next year you will see Oda more, and maybe that's why they keep Sipanski, because next year maybe Watson comes out, he makes those more explosive plays than we know he can make. I also think, you know, part of the Browns' problem is they have not addressed the wide receiver position. I don't think that we were on the air together when they got Amari Cooper, but I have been saying for years and months, Amari Cooper is a borderline, you know, really high-end number two. Uh, he's not a number one to me. He is a, a, a end number one that can do really good against teams that don't have great defensive backs. But Amari Cooper won't disappear in games, specifically on the road. And Donovan Peoples-Jones, a nice receiver, but he is not a talented wide receiver. You know, to be a number two, I think he's more of a number three. And then Schwartz, obviously, has been a bust of a pick. David Bell has not worked out. So when I look at it, the Browns' scheme offensively to me is outdated. They need to get better receivers. Uh, and there's a lot of focus on the running backs with Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. To me, you don't need two great backs. Maybe you could have moved off Hunt and got an additional pick or an additional receiver or an additional defensive lineman, which you also need. Like, I think the Browns' roster is really good, but you're right. I think that they rely too much on Miles Garrett, who... Let's be honest, he never produces when the time matters. He's never made a run-stuffing play, it feels like, in his entire career. Denzel Ward is always hurt. Grady Williams is always hurt. So it's a roster full of talented people that are always hurt. And then a roster that is somewhat flawed in terms of skill position players that you need to succeed in the NFL in 2022. Yeah, you said straight on, Brandon. Yeah, the Navy do need a you know, a better receiving core. I mean, the whole Odell Beckham situation that went on for three years never worked out at all. I mean, just him and Baker could never get on the same page. I mean, I was listening to something on the radio today this morning, and they were saying, like, you know, probably, like, the player that a lot of the Browns players looked up to last season was a lot, mainly Jarvis Landry. You know he was hurt all last season. He was, he was the one leading that offense mainly and getting the players motivated and stuff. I mean, they need to have a receiver like that. I mean, Landry, you know, good receiver and all, but he wasn't like a solid number one. He was always a great slot receiver that I saw. But they need someone like that at receiver. Uh, I think they should move on from Kareem on, try to trade him, get a second or third round draft pick for him. You're probably not going to get a first unless you give him more. I mean, you gave up all those first-round picks for Watson, so you're probably not going to see a first-round pick for, like, another four years. Yeah, and, you, you know, the, the thing is, I think, and so it's, you know, like we said, you need to upgrade the receiving core because look at these teams. You know, Arizona, they went out, you know, they're not a very good team this year, but they went on and they got DeAndre Hopkins. Completely changed Kyler Murray's life. Josh Allen, they went and got Savon Diggs. Josh Allen has been a different quarterback since. Jalen Hurts, A.J. Brown, coming to Philadelphia this season. That's completely transformed Jalen Hurts. The Browns do not have that guy right now, and I know Watson can make magic work with a lot of different people. But until they do that, um, 
I don't know, you know, how much impact he's going to have. I want to ask you, though, about Tua. Uh, because we've we've seen the impact of Tyreek Hill. You know, we just mentioned Tua's got Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle. And Enzo, when we were on the air together at Buckstore Radio, I was a constant negative person towards Tua. I did not think he was going to work in the NFL. I thought he was too small. I didn't think he had the arm strength. And then all of a excuse me, and then all of a sudden this season, uh, Mike McDaniel comes in. And Tua looks great. But then over the last couple of games, he has not looked like the same quarterback, especially when you compare him on the field with Justin Herbert like they did last week against the Chargers. Yeah, I think the change in system from Brian Flores to Mike McDaniel uh, probably helped to uh, a lot, you know, getting into McDaniel's schemes and everything. I mean, McDaniel, I compare him to like another Sean McVay type coach. And then, of course, you have your uh, college teammate in Jalen Waddle with, with you as your receiver. And then you have one of the top receivers in the league with Tyree Kill. And I think that made Tua look like a good one. I think he's a decent overall quarterback. I don't think he's, like, the best you can ever have. But I just think, like, teams right now, defense are figuring him out. I mean, a lot of the, you know, AFC East team, the Bills, the Jets, the Patriots, they have him down and know how to play against him now with this new offense he has. So. That's what I really think about Tua Tagovailoa. How surprised are you at the growth of Jalen Hurts this year? Of course, my quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles. Honestly, uh, I'm very imp- I'm impressed with the Eagles and like Sirianni and that whole team. I mean, last year you guys snuck into the playoffs and got blown out by Tampa, and then this year you come out hot, place of gr- glory, running the whole NFL pretty much. You know. I thought you guys, hey, you guys could be undefeated the whole season, but yet again, Washington had to spoil another undefeated season to a team from ball contender for sure. It's just usually if like if they keep on winning and they'll end up the season sixteen and one. You thinking about like a lot of the teams that like do that, like I remember the twenty eleven Packers were like that. You know, like first round of the playoffs are done. I, that's what I'm a little bit worried about the Eagles, like them going on this such long streak of winning. I mean, there has to be a point, hey, where they got to rest Jalen Hurts and the other starters too. I think, and again, speaking of which, because I have obviously watched every, every single Eagles game this season, this is not biased for me at all. I think this is actually pretty unbiased. Is watching this team this year, they can beat you a multitude of different ways. And so, you know, they can run the ball for 350 yards against Green Bay. And then the next week, they can turn around and they can throw for 350 against Tennessee. And that's what these offenses, like Kansas City, the Buffaloes, the Bengals, you know, the San Francisco even, with their quarterback situation, it really doesn't matter because of how good the rest of their team is built. But Philly just has, they have, you know, two terrific wide receivers in A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith. They have the running game, Miles Sanders, the tight end, and Dallas Goddard. The offensive line's one of the best in the week. The defensive line is, is, is one of the best in the week. And let's face it, their only loss was to Washington because Washington converted, I think it was like, what, 14 or 15 or something like that, third downs. You know, they were able to control the clock. They had the ball for for over 40 minutes. But I just think the the progression of Jalen Hurts from year two to year three is on like a Josh Allen type level because I did not expect Jalen to be this accurate this early and I can say it has transformed the football team and they have bought in and Nick Sirianni and his 
feisty Philadelphia white culture. Yes. Yeah, he did really change the culture of Sirianni. I mean, going from a, another good head coach to another good head coach, which kind of makes the transition easy. I mean, you <laughs> still have a couple people from that 2018 Super Bowl championship. I mean, a, a, lot of, a lot of the veterans are still there. Jason yeah. Kelsey, Wayne Nelson. Johnson, um, you know, Brandon Graham, Fletcher Cox. And then this this offseason, I thought of Howie Roseman had one of the best offseasons in the NFL. I didn't predict the Eagles were the Super Bowl this year, but I thought that we would win the the NFC East was a lot better in admittedly than I thought. But I looked at it and I said they got Jordan Davis in the first round of the draft. They went out, they trade for AJ Brown. They go out, they get James Bradbury in free agency. They get a linebacker finally in Kaiser White. They draft the Kobe Dean out of Georgia. So you're seeing the addition of talent, which is what the team did not have last year. And I think that's why they're catching so many people all by surprise because. You look at last year and you thought, oh, all they did was run the football. Well, they had no other choice. Outside of Devontae Smith, they really didn't have a pass catcher. Now they have two more with the with the development of Quez Watkins, the addition of A.J. Brown. And as I mentioned, I feel like that this team can beat you in just a multitude of ways. Yeah, they really can. And their division is not really like <clears throat> I mean, Washington's starting to play good now. I mean, their defense has been looking better. Uh, the same go for the Cowboys. They're starting to look a little good, but you, you always know they're going to choke at some point in the season and, or in the playoffs. And then the, the Giants surprised a lot of people to start off, but it was just one of those early seasons. Oh, I, I, I never believed in the Giants. Okay? Like, you you, you watch them. They won, what, five or six games on the last play of the game? You know, it was like lucky you know, victory after victory. And so I never believed in the Giants. But, yeah, I mean, Washington's playing well with any of Dallas in there as well. Yeah, I think uh, I do like Ryan Dable as their head coach. I just think the Giants just need a change at quarterback and uh, just get rid of Daniel Jones. I mean, he was a bust the minute he stepped on an NFL field. I mean, Eli Manning, he was a good quarterback. Give him that. I mean... But Daniel Jones is just on another level of just bad and just not helping the team out at all. I mean, that that's really got to be their main focus is trying to get a new quarterback huh, for the Giants. And Okay, last NFL question for you is, I got to ask you about Green Bay. Um, because here's the deal. Aaron Rodgers obviously was the reason why Devontae Adams decided that he wanted to go to Vegas. I had said, you know what? That Aaron Rodgers' fault. Why Aaron Rodgers? Why in the bed that he made? Um, and now, what's face outside of Christian Watson? Green Bay does not really have many play playmakers. Now we saw Jordan Love in that game against Philadelphia come in, and he looked pretty good. He looked the best he had since maybe college uh, when he lost to Kent State's own Dustin Crum in that bowl game. Um, what would you do if you're Green Bay? And do you move Aaron? Do you move Jordan Love? The Green Bay's in a like a tough situation. I mean, you already know Rodgers doesn't really like much of uh, the management with the Packers and everything. And you know he'll give them some fuss if they want to go with uh, Jordan Love instead of him for next season. He he would complain and stuff, and you know he'll try to request a trade and everything. But it's looking right now like Rodgers looking past his prime too. This has been his like worst season in like his career. 
I mean, he's not the same Aaron Rodgers he was four or five years ago. I mean, he hasn't been throwing good. I mean, yes, him not having weapons around is really hurting them too, but maybe if he goes to a different team, will he help them out? I don't know. I mean, just look at uh, Russell Wilson right now yeah. uh, in Seattle. I mean, he let out, left there, and, you know, he's still in, he's still in like, a better age than Rodgers, but, you know, that team is, like, very disappointing. I mean, they're already limited for the playoffs to Broncos. Yeah, yeah. I mean, their their team is just, you know, not good, built all around good. I mean, you just have Wilson, and he couldn't really change the team, and then he's got that whole weird, you know, philosophy he has and trying to bring his players together and stuff, and it, it's just not working out there endeavor, and so they're going to have a big change, too, and it's it's just been a real mess for that team. For sure. Well, and uh, we could talk NFL all day, but I want to flip gears now to college football. Um, I'm just going to ask you first before I give my thoughts. Your thoughts on the Final Four, that being obviously Georgia, Michigan, TCU, and Ohio State. Honestly, I would say that the committee, you know, Georgia, Michigan did deserve it. Uh, TCU and Ohio State, I think those were kind of like questionable ones. I mean, Ohio State got blown out by Michigan in their last game. And then TCU, you know, was just kind of like lost in the Big 12 championship to uh, Kansas State. I think those were like kind of the two iffy ones. I didn't think Bama was really going to get in at all. But I don't know why. I would much rather see Ohio State-Michigan again the first round instead of seeing if that would happen in the championship to see if Ohio State can really compete in them. And plus, that would be in good TV ratings for college football unless they have some uh, – way to figure out that Ohio State can somehow beat Georgia and play Michigan in the national championship game. I mean, Anyway, I just think, you know, the Buckeyes just, you know, they're just a team with good players, and but Ryan Day's coaching has been kind of questionable in the in that Michigan game, and, you know, they haven't beat Michigan since uh, 2019. They haven't beat Michigan in the 2020s at all, and, you know, they just kind of got lucky and were able to sneak in just on the way to go. I mean, USC losing in the Pac-12 championship really helped them a lot. And I just think just Georgia's overall better team. They have pretty much the same team they did last season. You know, great defense, good running game. And then just Michigan just plays better than them. And you're just going to have to wait and see what would happen in this college football playoffs. Yeah, Enzo, I had said if I, if I was a part of the committee, which I believe one day I will be a part of the college football committee because I believe I'm the only committee member that actually matters. Um, but nonetheless, I believe the four teams should have been one Georgia, two Michigan. Here's my change. Three is Ohio State, and number four is two loss Alabama. And here's why. I know everyone's going to flip out. Brady, you can't put a two loss team in the college football playoff. Okay, I don't care if Alabama had five losses on their schedule. They are better than TCU. Uh, Let's just put it out there right now. If you put almost any other team in the SEC versus any other team in the Big 12, or the Big 10 for that matter, Big 10 and SEC, which why obviously the USC is looking to go to the Big 10, and you have Texas and Oklahoma going to the SEC, because these teams know the SEC and the Big Ten are just better. Like, I think Alabama, their two losses were the buzzer, one to Tennessee and, and one to LSU. Brian Kelly, first year at LSU, did a good job. Obviously, LSU had to go for two there to get the win. 
but I just feel like Bama and two of their laws of the buzzer and DCU hadn't really played anybody all year. And when you put DCU up against a Michigan team that's very physical, excuse me, very physical that can run the football, you know, Michigan's going to win that game. I don't know what the spread is right now. I'd probably take Michigan by about two touchdowns. Um, OSU Georgia's interesting to me. I think OSU could certainly give Georgia a game, maybe even beat Georgia. But I just, I don't think TCU is a very good football team. And this was a very weird college football season. And I still say, if you put Alabama TCU on a neutral field, Alabama's going to win that game, which is why I thought Bama should have deserved the fourth spot. Yeah, I, ju- I just didn't really think Bama deserved to get in this season. I mean, just, you know, that whole two-loss factor it was kind of killed. I mean, if they only had one loss and didn't lose to LSU, I, I would have been fine with Bama being in. But, you know, it's just a nice break not seeing Alabama. I mean, yes, you still got the usual Ohio State and Georgia and then Michigan making it for the second time, too. Okay, but, but again, let me ask you this question. What game would you rather see? Would you rather see Michigan against TCU? Or would you rather see Georgia? Against Alabama, I would. I mean, if you're saying it that way, I would try to see Georgia, Alabama. Exactly. Ohio State, Michigan, Georgia, Alabama, because they're both going to be better games, and that's what this is all about. No one's going to want to watch that Michigan TCU game. Like, I, it shouldn't be about television ratings, but at the end of the day, we all know Michigan is going to probably kill TCU. If that game is closed going to the fourth quarter, I will absolutely be shocked. We saw this when Alabama played Oklahoma. You, you, you know, the Lincoln Riley Oklahoma team. I said, do not put Oklahoma in the college football playoffs. They're going to get killed. They may deserve it, but it's a waste of time because the game's going to be over by halftime. I think the same situation is going to apply here to Michigan TCU. Ohio State Georgia, I think, will be a very good game, and I give Ohio State a good chance actually to beat Georgia. But man, I just, I, I have almost no respect for TCU because the conference that they play in. Yeah, I mean, Big 12 has just never been that powerful of a conference. Really, I mean, Oklahoma made it like a whole bunch of times in that looking Riley era with Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, and Jalen Hurts. And now, you know, they're starting to become an irrelevant conference with Texas and Oklahoma leaving for the SEC. And then you also mentioned about how the Big 10 is going to add USC and UCLA, who are really... I mean, USC had a good season this year in their first year to think night, but they're on the nowhere same level as Ohio State and Michigan. Not now, but wait till Wink and Riley recruits. I mean, once they get that, once they get that defense run, I mean, Caleb Williams is already a star. I think next year USC is a great chance to make the college football playoff. Right. Okay. So let's move on now. Let's talk. You know what? Let's talk some baseball. And so, because real quick, I got to get your opinion on what the Cleveland Guardians did this year. So this this year, they surprised me, you know, this past season. I didn't think this Guardians team was really going to, you know, come out and win the division and everything. But, it, you know, just... The way they have their organization as just keeping Antonetti and Tito around really helps them. I mean, 
Francona really loves working with these young guys and stuff and training them and coaching them up and, you know, able, like, just to keep them going every day. And he's just been, like, the most consistent manager that we've had. You know, same thing with the team, too. I mean, we've had, we haven't had a losing season in a while. We've always been above 500. And just, you know, you never know what's going to happen. So now we're kind of getting the hype, like, all right, this team is good. We are kind of thinking the year, like, well, the White Sox, they look to be better, but, you know, their manager was Tony Delusa, who is old and outdated and doesn't understand the games. And then, like, we were looking at the Twins, and they didn't do that well either. And, you know, we were just kind of in, like, a lucky spot. Hey, we got hot at the right time at the after the All-Star break in uh, August and September, and we're able to make the playoffs and win our division and go on the sweep Tampa in the wildcard round. And then that Yankees series, I I thought after that Oscar Gonzalez walk off, like, hey, we would, we're at least guaranteed to win the next game tomorrow night on Sunday. But that game didn't go too well. And then we had to go back to New York where there was a rain delay when they could have pushed the game up. But no, they had to favor the Yankees and, you know, really hurted our chances on that one. But they had a fantastic season and already liking the moves they made this offseason, you know, signing Josh Bell, having him at first base or DH and having him and Josh Naylor just switch off. I think that would be a great move for them. And pitching, they have a pretty good starting rotation. I think bullpen is not that bad, not the same bullpen they had a couple of years ago, but still not a bad bullpen. But I think, you know, they're clear shot, you know, just to, you know, be that contenders to win the division for next season. And uh, one of the things that I won with the Guardians this year was, to me, they played baseball the right way. Uh, you know me. I'm more of a traditionalist when it comes to baseball. I don't love all of these analytics. We talked about it a little bit in football, but, you know, analytics and baseball, to me, I don't really care about swing rate and war and all this bull crap. To me, just just put, you know, the, the head of the bat on the ball. Uh, and get base hits and, and factor in runs and move the runner over. Like, the Guardians played small ball, and they did it really well. And, you know, you mentioned the Yankees series. I would have loved to see if they would have got a game by that Monday night without a rain delay because I think it would have been a different game because the Yankees were down to essentially no pitchers. Um, it is a miracle what Cleveland did this year, and, you know, it, it made baseball real, really exciting. This team was truly, again, unbiased. I, I, I know that that were in Cleveland, but to me, they were one of the most fun teams to watch in all of baseball this year. Yeah, yeah, they were. I mean, just a lot of fun, exciting, useful players that they have. You know, Stephen Kwan being one of them. Uh, Oscar Gonzalez, you know, him having SpongeBob SquarePants theme song as his walk-up song made a lot of people, like, happy. And then, you know, obviously, like, the veterans like Jose Ramirez, who's the leader of this team and has been carrying this team mainly on offense. But it's good to just, you know, have more bats and everything. I know not all the players have been consistent with hitting, but that's just always been one thing we realized that we've always struggled with was our bats. I mean, you got to at least have two to four that can really hit the ball in your lineup to, to, in order to win the World Series. And yeah. Getting Bell was the, for the right move for that. Well, the problem is Houston arguably got nine of them, right? I mean, that, that's the problem, but that's not the here nor there. I do quickly want to get your opinion on the new rule changes because I have said, listen, uh, I don't like banning the ship. I think it's like banning a, a defensive play in football. It's like banning cover three in football. Um, if you can't stop it, why 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 should I have to 
you know, change my play to just please you. Um, I, I don't like the bigger bases either. You know, we'll see about this pitch clock as well. But to me, these rule changes are not going to solve the number one issue with baseball. And that is they don't market any of their stars. Yeah, that's what we've been saying for like a long time. The marketing and baseball is nowhere on the same level as the NFL and the MLB. I mean, you can say here that the Guardians locally are doing a good job marketing the players now that we're kind of used to know a couple of these names. But nationally, baseball is just still not known, recognized and everything. And then the whole way the you know, we, we were talking about it before the show's harvest, that way the season is structured, you know, this past season, there was that lockout that um, that pushed the season back a little later and started in early April. We're saying we should push the season back to like end of April because early April in Cleveland, you're getting rain, snow, and who knows what else in c- cities like Chicago, Detroit, Toronto, even though they got a dome or any like New York, Boston. You know, the weather here is not like really suitable for, for baseball that much. You need nice weather doesn't really hit around here until, like, middle of June, really. And I think that's one thing baseball needs to change, and I don't get the whole thing of the bigger bases. I, I don't know how that would change the game or anything. I mean, look, I played T-ball in Little League. We had big bases. I don't really think that makes change. What, does it change the way if a runner's out or safe? I have no clue on that. It doesn't really make much sense to me at all. But then I think the pitch clock is going to speed up the game a little bit. I did go to a Rubber Ducks game down in Akron, and the game did go a little bit quicker than a normal MLB game would, but I think it's just another like, little way just to keep the game. I mean, it's kind of almost like, think of it as a shot clock or a, a game. Clock, yeah. Uh, basketball or f- football. What's your thoughts on the shift? It, the shift, that really takes away the strategy of baseball. Yeah. I Feels like you know, especially a team like the Guardians. Francona loves using the shift to strategize against the hitter. It really makes no sense, you know. Kind of just you know, it feels like it makes the game too even, and it feels like you know, players are gonna get lucky on hits and stuff. Or saying like, oh, if they did, if they didn't, if there was a shift was still in there, that guy would have been out. Yes, it's really kind of killing the buzz for the game and everything. You know, I think you know, baseball's like, hey, I think the way we can make this game exciting more is by getting more runs. I think. The shift just made the game, you know, more competitive, these low-scoring games, and, you know, just never know what's going to really happen in any of them, depending on the way the shift happens, you know, and how the batter's able to adjust the shift and hit away from it, too. So, Enzo, you know, I know you were talking about, you know, the MLB, they, they need to shorten their season, but then do it start at the end of April. I have said for the last couple of years, I think a great marketing campaign would be Memorial Memorial Day weekend. 100 game season Memorial Day weekend is the unofficial start of summer. You can say, Here we go, baseball weekend. I, I know the NBA playoffs are usually happening at that time, maybe it's around you know, end of conference finals in the NBA finals range. But I really think it's like, you know, hey, back to summer, we got baseball, grilling, hot dogs, you know, hamburger food, all that stuff, and just they, they need to do something to market and get people to their game, and they're just not going to do it, and these rule changes are not going to do it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't know if they really want to go to 100 games. I said maybe cut her in half to 130, but I think just in general, it, it is just such a long season. It is really hard to keep track of all of them. I mean, 
let's just say, I mean, each team only has 82 home games a year. So there's just, you know, a lot of opportunities to people go to games and then like yeah. some of the games are scheduled at weird times and stuff. And then this past season, you know, they were doing the ex- with, uh, what, Peacock streaming service and yeah. Apple TV. They were cutting out games for a lot of people who really didn't have access to those streaming Which is so unfair. I mean, you're asking everybody to get every streaming service. And, you know, baseball, the market is your 50-year-olds that, you know, don't even have the streaming service. Yeah, and they just thought that was just going to be a way to market people. I mean, we know the NFL went to Amazon Prime for Thursday Night Football. But I I think that works better because the NFL is more targeted to more young people compared to the way baseball is. And, you know, a lot of them just watch it on the cable on uh, Valley Sports or whatever their local sports is or a few national games on Fox or ESPN. That's about it. And so I'm going to ask you one NBA question before, (laughs) before we go. Okay, Donovan Mitchell, obviously, comes to the Cavs. He has made a tremendous impact on this team. We knew he was going to make a tremendous impact, but maybe more than we initially thought. I had said this year, because the NBA seemingly seems to be a lot of depth now around the NBA. And the Cavs, to me, have one of the deepest rosters in the NBA. Does Donovan Mitchell make the Cavs legitimate, not just playoff contenders, championship contenders? I, in some way, it does. I really don't think this Cavs team is yet at that championship level. I would say, yes, they're playoff contenders. I would say they are competing to be in the Eastern Conference Finals this year, either if that's against Boston or Milwaukee, or I would say maybe the Sixers. I, I really don't believe much in the Nets at all with whole Kyrie D- Durant situation. Yeah, I agree. But I really don't like it a lot. I don't think it's going to work out. I mean, the teams the Cavs have to worry about are – Boston, Milwaukee. I know next week they are taking on the the Bucks at yep. home. That's one of those games where they got to be ready. And, and the other thing is the Cavs got to stay healthy too. You've seen how injuries really affected that team last year. That could have been like a six seed in the playoffs and ended up being in the play in. I think this year their goals try to stay as healthy as they, they can. You know, make sure the players are you know not overdoing it in games and practices and stuff. So. That's something they got to be worried about, but I think they can be the third or fourth seed in the playoffs this year. Finals contenders, I really don't think so. I think Milwaukee and Boston are just overall better overall teams than the Cavs. The other thing, though, too, Enzo, is the NBA is very balanced. You know, it's not like a couple years ago where we knew it was going to be the Cavs and the Warriors or this team and that team. It's not the case anymore in the NBA. Never thought we would see the day. The NBA forever, you know, you had three or four teams that win the championship every year. And now, I mean, it feels like we got six, seven, eight teams this year that they can win the title. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm. you're right. I mean, the Eastern Conference, I would, the Cavs are somewhat bit of a, you know, the contenders of the finals. But I wouldn't say they're like one of the teams I really think is going to make it. And you look at the West, I mean, I'm surprised Golden State's the 10th seed right now. I just saw Curry just went down. Yeah, he went down, so that's a big hurt to them. But you never know how that team just comes back when those players are healthy. And then the Lakers, obviously, LeBron, Russ, and AD, all that talent, and they're a bad basketball team. The Lakers team is just old talent. I mean, all those guys, uh, Russ and... and, do Do they still have Carmelo? No. No, they don't. Okay, well, well, Russ is past his prime. Anthony Davis is hurt. LeBron's up there in age. He can't do the same st- stuff anymore like he did with the Cavs. Well, LeBron can still put up 30 points a game, but he can't carry a team anymore. Yeah, he, he can't do that. I have to say, definitely Memphis 
and Denver will probably be the favorites to make the finals out of the West. Uh, New Orleans could be too. I mean, Zion looks like he lost some weight. He's playing better. Uh, Phoenix looking like they're getting back on the same level. And Portland surprised a lot of people too because everyone's yeah. you, Utah gonna... as well. I mean, our old friends, Colin Tankton, Lori Markin. So, but with that, Enzo, I'm going to go ahead. We're going to go ahead and wrap up this, this interview here. Thank you so much for coming on to this Brands World Christmas special that is uh, airing right now as we speak. And I appreciate you for uh, taking all your time and being here today. Uh, Brandon, I appreciate you coming on. I, I, you have a good holidays and a Merry Christmas to you. Thank you, Enzo. I appreciate it, man. Thank and you, again, Thank you to Enzo Orlando for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Enzo, for sitting down with me. As you just heard, we talked all things NFL, college football, National Basketball Association, and Major League Baseball. But without further ado, it's time to bring back one of WWE's old segments that they used to have. They haven't done it in about five years, but the Slammy Awards. And I thought, you know, just like the NFL Awards, which we had earlier in the show with our wonderful Christmas music, you know, this was such an incredible year in WWE with a lot of incredible moments and a big year in professional wrestling, which we're going to get to. The storylines of behind the scenes is absolute madness. As you know, we spent almost the whole summer covering Vince McMahon's uh, resignation from the company. But I thought, why don't we bring back the WWE Slammy Awards? So here we go. This is my male superstar of the year candidates. And just like the NFL, I tried to find at least three to do for every category. Number three for the male superstar of the year, I have Seth Rollins. Obviously, an incredible uh, match for the Universe Championship with Roman Reigns at the Royal Rumble. The incredible feud with Cody Rhodes at WrestleMania and beyond. And now that he is carrying Monday Night Raw ever since Roman Reigns left to become the Undisputed Champion, is mostly on SmackDown, taking away the, the WWE Championship. Now that the Tag Team Championship with the U.S. becoming the Undisputed Champion uh, is no longer seen as much. And with Cody Rhodes out and injured. Rollins is really taking the mantle as the guy on Monday night, and he's been doing great, obviously, in the United States Championship picture right now. He turned from heel to babyface. Everybody's singing his song, and the drip guy, the visionary, the revolutionary, definitely has had a rebound in 2022. Number two, I have Sami Zayn. I mean, whatever this man has done earns the gold, including his work with Johnny Knoxville, not only at the Royal Rumble, but at WrestleMania 38 in a match of the year candidate, in my opinion. And obviously, everything he's done with the Bloodline has been absolutely spectacular, much-watched television. But we cannot upstage the Tribal Chief, the head of the table. Without a doubt, the Superstar of the Year, WWE was doing a Slammy Awards in 2020. If they were doing one in 2021, it would go to this man those years as well. Everything Roman Reigns has done. When Roman Reigns is on your television, you want to watch, you want to listen to what the Tribal Chief has to say. He's been in a lot of danger this year. He's added Solo Sokoa to the boardwalk. He's added Sami Zayn to the boardwalk. Multiple Match of the Year candidates with Brock Lesnar, with Drew McIntyre, with Riddle. A great feuds left and right. And his character work as the Tribal Chief and as the head of the table is getting better and better and better. The bloodline is different when Roman Reigns is on the screen versus when he is not on the screen and it clearly shows without a doubt 
Roman is the male superstar of the year. Now, female superstar of the year was a little bit tougher because not a lot of females stood out. At number three, I'm going to put Rhea, Rhea Ripley just because of her work as of late with the <coughs> with the Judgment Day, excuse me, and Dominic Mysterio. What she has done has been absolutely fantastic. It has made the Judgment Day watchable, and her character work again alongside Dominic Mysterio and her mommy gimmick has been really entertaining television. Number two, I'm going to have Bailey, and again, Bailey returned at SummerSlam in July with with Eo Sky and Dakota Kai to form Damage Control. But Bailey is one of the only women that you can see on television mostly every Monday and Friday. She's always around, and she's always doing something, and she still has great heel work. Number one, I have Bianca Belair, who obviously defeated Becky Lynch in a great match for WrestleMania 38 to win the Raw Women's Championship. A championship she has not relinquished since. But again, none of the women, none of the women haven't been booked well this year. But none of the women, in my opinion, this year, not even Bianca, you know, not even Bailey, not even Rhea, have had sort of that standout year that somebody like Roman Reigns, Sami Zayn, Seth Rollins have had on the men's side. Again, this is not to discount the woman, but I feel like the men have had more memorable moments this year than the woman. There's been a lot going on with the woman, obviously, Sasha Banks and Naomi walking out of the company as well. So there's been a lot of change this year in the women's division, and no one's been really, you know, had a great personal feud, I would say, outside of uh, Bianca and Becky at WrestleMania 38. Tag team of the year. Number three, I have Alpha Academy. Now, I know many people consider them as a comedy tag team. The fact of the matter is, though, throughout 2022, they had a great rivalry with Seth Rollins and Kevin Owens. They had a great rivalry with RK Pro for the Raw Tag Team Championship. And, you know, they have been around. You know, they have been in almost every single segment of Monday Night Raw. They've been on Monday Night SmackDown. They've feuded with a lot of different people, including the OC, Braun Strowman, the Street Profits. The Viking Raiders, I mean, you name it, they have pretty much wrestled every single tag team. They've been the MVP, you could argue, of the tag team division, you know, outside of the Usos, since RK Bro went down in May. And that's why they deserve to be on this list of RK Bro. I have them listed at number two. Now, obviously, they have not wrestled since May, when Randy Orton went down with an injury. But can you name? <coughs> can you name a more over tag team going into May of 2022 than RK Bro in the last decade? I don't know if you can. You know, Randy Orton and Riddle were so popular. It was a shame that Randy Orton got injured, but he did. And you know, but RK Bro again was so popular. <coughs> you got to put them up there. And at number one, I have the Usos. Obviously, the undisputed tag team champions have had a great phenomenal year. Great matches with RK Bro, the Street Profits, you know, the Viking Raiders, um, you know, all of the above. They unified the tag team championships. They are without a doubt the tag team of the year. Return of the year. I am number three being damage control. I mean, that was a complete shock in SummerSlam when you bring in Bailey. Obviously, Eosky, Dakota Kai, as I mentioned earlier, 
forming a group. And then Bennett, Honor Returns. Obviously, there's been Honor Returns since Triple H has come into power. Uh, before that, there wasn't really a lot of returns and a lot of them not as impactful as Damage Control will pretty much run the Raw Tag Team division over the last five or six months. Huge comeback for Bailey. Number two was obviously Bray Wyatt at Extreme Rules. Now, I would have put this at number one, but the reason why I did not <coughs> put it at number one is because I do think that Cody Rhodes' return at WrestleMania 38 was a little bit bigger. Not only because I did not expect Cody Rhodes to ever return to WWE, he was in a phenomenal position of power at AEW as an EVP. And so to see him come back as a wrestler in WWE under Vince McMahon was completely shocking to me. That's why I got Cody at number one, Bray Wyatt, obviously. Amazing return at Extreme Rules, but I have him at number two behind Cody. Now, double cross of the year. At number three, I have The Miz on Logan Paul at WrestleMania. Again, I'm really reaching for straws here. There was not a lot of double crosses this year. Number two, Dominic Mysterio on Rey Mysterio. Obviously, shocking moment of cause of the castle. After Edge and Ray end up defeating Finn Balor and Damian Priest in that tag team match, Dominic turns on Ray and joins the Judgment Day. And Dominic Mysterio, who we wanted him to turn on Ray Mysterio for so long, finally getting the spotlight with, with Rio Ripley and the Judgment Day. And speaking of the Judgment Day, I believe the top double cross of the year was the Judgment Day turning. On edge. I mean, that was happening the night after after uh, I want to sell when Finn Bauer joined the group. Obviously, Edge brought him out of the ring. We thought Finn Bauer was going to join Edge, Damian Priest, and Rio Ripley. But WWE had other plans. And that may have been because of the Cody Rhodes injury, but it was like a completely shocking moment when the Judgment Day turned on Edge. And that is my double cross of the year. Premium live event of the year. You can make a case for all three of these, but number three, I have Clash of the Castle. Just a spectacular event all the way around. Every match was phenomenal. They arguably had two matches of the year candidates on there with Gunther versus Sheamus for the Intercontinental Championship, Drew McIntyre versus Roman Reigns for the Undisputed Championship. You also had a great tag team match I just mentioned with Edge and Finn Balor versus the Judgment Day, along with Bayley, Io Sky, Dakota Kai. Basically, the debut of Damage Control versus Bianca, Asuka, and Alexa and, and Bliss. Excuse me. Number two, I have SummerSlam, which was, again, a great event all the way around. It was the first event with Triple H in charge, and you could really tell, especially when Brock Lesnar drove that tractor through the ring. That match, I mean, I'm going to say it right now, I have it as my match of the year. Roman and Brock, the last man standing match at SummerSlam was a match that I just cannot get out of my mind. I think it was the best last man standing match of all time. But my number one premium live event of the year, without a doubt for me, is the most stupendous premium live event of all time, WrestleMania 38. We'll go down as Vince McMahon's last WrestleMania that he put together was just a phenomenal 
spectacular, stupendous two-night event with obviously, uh, you know, everything going on with Stone Cold, with Pat McAfee, Austin Theory. I mean, there was just so many. The Johnny Knoxville, the Logan Paul, outside of Roman and Brock and Bianca and Becky and, I mean, everything. WrestleMania this year over the two nights had everything. Great action, celebrity appearances, fun. And Drew McIntyre and Happy Corbin was even a great match. I mean, everything we got this year, WrestleMania once again felt huge. It felt like WrestleMania, and it was one of the most special two nights on the calendar this year. Match of the year, I already mentioned Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar at SummerSlam. When you drive a tractor through the ring, that's going to be the match of the year. Gunther vs. Sheamus was just a technical clash at Clash of the Castle. Phenomenal match. And then number three, I'm going to throw in Sami Zayn vs. Johnny Knoxville at WrestleMania 38 because I have not laughed as hard as I possibly have. And that night, you have to go back and watch that match. And now celebrity appearances. I have Johnny Knoxville 1, Logan Paul at number 2. You can throw Pat McAfee in there if you want. I think Pat McAfee is more of a wrestler than a celebrity. But I'm going to put Johnny Knoxville here over to Logan Paul simply because of that WrestleMania match with Sami Zayn. I mean, everybody in, in Knox in uh, Jackass Forever was involved. It was just a great match from top to bottom. And my final Slammy Award of the Year is the Wrestling Story of the Year. I mean, there was the CM Punk in the All-Way Broad. There was Cody Rhodes returning to WWE, which we did not expect at all. But obviously, Vince McMahon retiring. I mean, nobody thought in a million years we would see the day that Vince McMahon would still be alive and he would no longer be in control of the day-to-day -day operations of WWE. Nobody ever thought that when Vince McMahon retired, WWE's stock would actually go up. I cannot imagine the product improving more than it has under Triple H's creative direction and obviously Stephanie McMahon and Nick Khan as co-CEOs. And WWE has been really exciting right now. There, there's this moment of you never know what you're going to expect. He's obviously brought back a lot of release talent from NXT. But there is just this moment of togetherness and coming together and a reset and a new era in WWE, which is going to make 2023 really exciting and convince this man retiring. Who would have thought in a year where Stone Cold Steve Austin came out of retirement and wrestled against Kevin Owens at WrestleMania 38, that that would not be a match of the year candidate, that that would not be a story of the year top three candidate, because of obviously the brother went on with CM Punk in the elite. Who would have thought that CM Punk is on his way out of AEW? Who would have thought that Cody Rhodes would return to WWE under Vince McMahon's leadership and he bumped like an absolute stud into the stardust? But that is not the story of the year because Vince McMahon is no longer in charge of WWE. What a crazy, surreal, <laughs> dare I say, in this year, WWE had in 2022. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time to go over my week 16 NFL Moneyline picks and best bets rapid fire version. Now, last week we struggled in best bets. I went 2 2 and 1, my first push on the year. I had the Atlanta Falcons plus four against the Saints. I had Cincinnati minus three and a half against Tampa. I pushed on Tennessee plus three against the Chargers. I ended up missing Minnesota by a couple points against the Colts. What an incredible comeback that was. As well as my dumbass ended up picking the, the uh, Seattle Seahawks. 
over the San Francisco 49ers. That was a bad pick by me. We are currently, after going 9-7 and seven in the money line last week, 133-91. and 91. We are also 37-37-1 in best bet, which is about 49%. Not where we want to be, especially considering we've struggled over the last couple weeks. And last year, we went 137-87 and 87 in the money line and 40-34-1 and one in best bet at this point in the season. So again, because of my voice, we're going to do this rapid fire. Kicking things off, Thursday Night Football, Jacksonville at the Jets. I like the way Jacksonville's playing. I'm going to pick the Jaguars on the road. I'm betting the Browns against the Saints minus three. Saints are going to be cold. There's a lot of interesting lines this week with the weather. And obviously, Philadelphia's win with a backup quarterback against Dallas. But I like the Browns here minus three. I think the Saints are going to struggle in the cold. Browns run the football to Sean Watson. Plays a little bit better each and every week. Browns here cover. That's the move minus three. Next, we got the Ravens. Now, the spread is too much here at seven and a half. I think the feeling here is Lamar Jackson's going to come back. Uh, but I think Baltimore does defeat Atlanta. Next game, I love this bet here. Cincinnati minus three and a half at New England. Probably one of my favorite bets of the weekend. We know Bill Belichick is up good quarterbacks. We know New England likes Dallas. I don't care what happened. You know, the play against the Las Vegas Raiders. Whatever it will. I think Cincinnati is a better team than New England. I'll take the Bengals. I'm taking the Bills over the Bears. The spread of eight and a half. I'm not comfortable with betting. I'm taking Detroit over Carolina. Sneaky trap game over the Lions. But Jared Goff is playing well. I think Carolina is going to be officially out of the playoff race this weekend. I think they're just going to tank to end the year. And I like Detroit to keep carrying that momentum heading into the postseason. I like the Vikings here at home over the Giants. Give me Kansas City at home over Seattle. Give me Tennessee. I'm betting Tennessee this week. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm betting Tennessee this week against Houston. Minus five. We saw what Derek Henry did the last time he the Texans. I know the Texans have played better over the last couple weeks, but I really still think that Tennessee is going to come on. I think Derek Henry is going to have a bounce back game after struggling here over the last month. Tennessee's offense has struggled over the last month. This is their get right game. And it seems like a showdown between the Jaguars and Titans is looming week 18 to see who gets the number four seed and the AFC South title. Commanders at the Niners. I find this spread really interesting of seven. You know, we'll see if Brock Purdy can continue his momentum. I think it's really interesting because Taylor Heineke has to play well to keep the Commanders postseason hopes alive. This is going to be a very interesting game. You have two great defensive lines, two limited quarterbacks. But I'm really curious to see how Washington plays in this game. I think Washington could make it close. I even think they pull off the... They could potentially... Pull off the upset, but I'm not comfortable doing it yet. I'm going to take San Francisco at home. Regardless of who plays for Philadelphia, Gardner Minshew or Jalen Hurts, I am taking the Eagles here over the Cowboys. The Eagles will be wrapping up the number one seed in the NFC in the NFC East Divisional Crown. I got Vegas over Pittsburgh. The night game. On Christmas Eve. Now Christmas Day. I love the Dolphins here. Minus four. That is my fifth best bet. I forgot to mention earlier. I'm taking Billy over Dallas. In my best bet. I want Miami over Green Bay. Christmas Day. I 
I got the Jaguars over the Jets, Browns over the Saints, Ravens over Atlanta, Cincinnati over New England, Bills over Chicago, Detroit over Carolina, Minnesota over the Giants, Kansas City over Seattle, Tennessee over Houston, San Francisco over Washington, Philly over Dallas, Vegas over Pittsburgh, Miami over Green Bay, Rams over the Broncos, Tampa over Arizona, Chargers over the Colts. I'm betting the Browns minus three against the Saints. Cincinnati minus three and a half against New England. Tennessee minus five against Houston. Philly plus five against Dallas. Regardless who plays, Jalen Hurts or Gardner Minshew. And Minnesota minus four against the Green Bay Packers. I think, uh, you know, the Dolphins bounce back. I think the Eagles clinch the, the number one seed. Tennessee in a get-right game rolls over Houston. Cincinnati and Joe Burrow continue their momentum by taking Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots completely out of the playoff picture. And the Browns continue their winning ways with Deshaun Watson against a Saints team that will be cold, playing outdoors in frigid temperatures. Jaguar Jets is going to be frigid this weekend. Sounds like Chicago's frigid, Baltimore's frigid, New England, you know, Kansas City. Anywhere you think of outdoors on Christmas Eve, sounds like it's going to be some really cold places. Benefit the cold weather teams that are playing in a dome like Atlanta or New Orleans. They're going to struggle. And I think there's some real interesting games this week that will decide the playoff picture. And not only the AFC, but the NFC should be a fun week of football. And now, coming up next, you will hear from the one and only in the land writer for BelieveLandMediaOLC.com, my good buddy, the host of the Sports Room Talk Show, Josh. Back to the Brandon's World Christmas Special, and here with me now, we have the host of the Sports Room Talk Show and the Indy Land Colorado for Believe Media LLC, the one, the only, Josh Unger. Josh, how are you doing? Pretty good. How about you, Brandon? You know, I'm doing good, uh, and I'm excited, as you guys may or may not know, me and Josh Otis, in addition of all things Cleveland Cavaliers last week, but we're not here to talk about NBA. We're going to talk a lot of NFL today. This is me and Josh. I don't really know Josh's takes. You know, on a lot of these things. Josh reminds me of a good friend of ours here at the show, Sean Fitzgerald, where me and him can get into a little sparring match, if you will. So I'm very excited to get to this NFL discussion. Josh, let's start off with the Cleveland Browns this year. Um, you know, I said going into the year that it was more of a punt year. You know, the Deshaun Watson suspension 11 games. I don't care, you know, if Jacoby Brissett would have went 8-3. and three. You know, he wasn't going 11-0, honestly. I kind of feel like I'm not really grading Deshaun Watson this year. His evaluation for me, at least, starts first game of 2023. There's a lot of unknowns. There's new schematics. He's learning the system, new, new everything. But, you know, I did think overall the move was worth it because he is a better football player on the field than Baker Mayfield, regardless of what he's done off the field. And I do think you can see some signs of mobility, zone reads, read options, all of those types of things that Jacoby Brissett could not do, that you need in a mobile offense in 2022. So I hear everything you're saying. I think the reason, like, our original quarterback room, once we got Deshaun Watson, ended up being, you know, Deshaun, Jacoby Brissett, and Josh Dobbs. 
we've since released Josh Jobs, so I think our quarterback room is now Deshaun Watson, Jacoby Brissett, and Kellen Mond, something like that. But either way, they all kind of have the same skill set, which is the ability to use their legs to create plays, but also throw be be a capable thrower of the football. And I get it. Jacoby Brissett doesn't have the same arm strength as Deshaun Watson necessarily. So you didn't see a lot of that deep passing that I think with Deshaun Watson, you'll see more of that as time goes on. But here's my thing. My problem with the Browns isn't so much with Jacoby Brissett or Deshaun Watson, which I don't think it's fair to give a proper assessment of Deshaun Watson yet. But while the Browns' defense has started to play better, like, there were way too many times early in the season where the offense had put the defense in a position to close out a game, whether it was that Week 2 game against the Jets, whether it was the Week 5 game against the Chargers. You could even point to the Week 7 game, I believe it was, against the Ravens. There's a number of examples where I'm just like, okay, Joe Woods, why do you still have your job as defensive coordinator? Like, there were there were just too many times where it's like, okay, offense has put you in a position to like close out the game and put the W in the or put you know what I'm trying to say there and it just felt like there were too many times where the defense is just like nah we're not going to close this game out well Josh I I can make the argument too and I and I know that the, that the metrics and everything will tell you Jacoby Percept played well the Browns have a really top 5 offense in the NFL and all this bull crap I don't care about the stats the Browns offense to me is not very good to begin with it's outdated. It is out schemed. They don't have very much talent at the wide receiver position. And listen, I don't give a crap if you're running 12 personnel, two tight ends, running with Nick Chubb, running with Kareem Hunt. The good teams in this league do not run that type of offense. You know, and you guys about this in your column a couple weeks ago. You look at teams like Kansas City, Buffalo, Philadelphia this year, San Francisco. They all innovate with the players that they have, and they mix, and they and they interchange. They don't get stagnant. And it's too many times the Browns, they, they go too much into the, into the well. You're right. The defense has not played up to par. Um, I have made the argument. I, I want to ask you this question real quick. I have made the argument, and don't you, – you can get mad at me all you want because a lot of Cleveland fans get mad at me when I say this. Okay. Miles Garrett is the single most overrated defensive end I have ever seen play a football game. When is the last time in a big, key, critical game he has made the play? And I'm not talking about against Tampa. You know, he made one play against Tampa in the fourth quarter. That's all he does. He shows up late in games. He gets her one or two sacks a game. He gets his 16, 17 sacks a year. But they have no difference on the, on the outcome of the game. He's not an Aaron Donald. He's not this game-changing pass rusher that pro football focus says is the best defensive end in football. What game-changing play does this 
all-pro guy make. He's never made a run tackle in his life. He gives up at the time on run plays. Like, that's at the Browns' problem is they have these so-called leaders, but there's guys like Denzel Ward, always hurt. Miles Garrett, to me, doesn't show enough enough effort consistently on play on the defensive side of the ball. And that's where, to me, I will get coaching because they don't adjust, they don't scheme, and that's not only on Joe Woods, but it's on Stefanski as well. Okay, so I, to a certain extent, I do hear what you're saying about Miles Garrett. I'm, I don't think it's a fully crazy take. I think it's a little bit of a crazy take, but I do. You do make some valid points, and I, I think you have a couple arguments that go in your favor. So I'll give you that part. Um, but you know, you were talking about how the Browns can't run the same scheme. I mean, we saw it. Like we we know we had the playoff success in 2020, and you know, in 2021. Everybody was expecting us to get right back to that point, win the AFC North, get back to the AFC Divisional Round, maybe even get to the AFC Championship game against Buffalo, something like that. But the Browns came out and and the exact same offensive scheme. And I'm just thinking, okay, Browns, I get it. You want to be a run-first team. You have this dynamic duo of Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. But do you not think that, like, the Ravens are going to watch film and be like, okay, we need to make these defensive adjustments to counter what the Browns are doing? Did you not think, like, the Steelers were going to do the same thing? The Bengals? I don't remember who else we played that year, but you get my overall point. Now, I do get it. Like, Baltimore, you know what they're going to do with Lamar Jackson and all that, but you still can't stop it. You just hope to contain it more. But at least, like, even though you know what the Ravens are going to do, I still feel like they have evolution in their offensive scheming. It's not the exact same run game every year. They change it up a little bit. Well, and part of that is because of Lamar Jackson's special talent in his work running ability, and I made the argument going into this year, even with Watson. I mean, Baltimore, I understand the concern. We know Lamar Jackson is hurt right now, but Baltimore's a very interesting team because they were the only team in the NFL before Lamar got hurt to lead it by double digits in every single game this year. Like, that's not a fluke. That is a Super Bowl stat that you can wait to say, this is a Super Bowl contender. They just weren't able to pull those things off. And then Cincinnati, everybody wanted to throw deck chairs and lawn chairs and say the Bengals were done after they started 0-2. I had said, listen, Joe Burrow had, a, had you know, that stomach laceration, did not take a snap from the Super Bowl to, to the regular season. Uh, he had a whole new offensive line. It was going to take him a few games to get right and look at Cincinnati now. Like, I, I kept telling people, Josh, over the last few years, styles make fights. Like, I don't care that the Browns beat the Bengals four straight times. What I do care about Cincinnati has beat Kansas City three straight times. Like, they, they, they have beaten Kansas City. The Browns have not. They are, in my opinion, they can beat Buffalo. They are explosive offensively, and they have really good defensive pieces. Like, the Browns, I don't care what you want to say about this talent. 
right now, to me, they're third in the division. Even if Watson was healthy for 17 games, I think they're far behind Baltimore and Cincinnati in key areas. I do think if Deshaun Watson was healthy, I actually think the Browns would be ahead of the Ravens in the division, but they would still not win the division, given that I think Cincinnati is still the superior team. So I will disagree with you on that point. However, I think what we do agree on, we're just saying it in a different way, is that the Browns are basically a one-trick pony in that you know what they're going to do. Again, I get it. Like Baltimore is the same thing, but Lamar Jackson is just that special that like you can't stop it no matter what you do. But like the Browns, and I get it. The Ravens don't necessarily have great wide receivers. They just claimed Sammy Watkins off waivers from the Packers. Rashad Bateman got hurt. And when Mark Andrews is there, that's who Lamar usually turns to. So I get it. But like I said earlier, at least the Ravens are try to evolve their out offense every year. They try to put something different in. I don't feel like I've seen that with the Browns. Every year it feels like it's the same type of offense. And I'm like, why? Like, let's see something new. I'm not saying like the Browns need to completely get away from being a run first team and get all pass happy and stuff. But like, okay, when we first drafted Anthony Schwartz out of Auburn, all I heard was like, you know, he's a speed guy and stuff like that. So I'm like, okay, let's try running some jet sweeps with him. Again, maybe not on a consistent basis because you don't want to fall into the trap of being, well, you know, consistently doing trick right plays. And, and you're wasting time with Anthony Schwartz. Anthony Schwartz <laughs> is not a NFL wide receiver. Like, that is half the broad problem. And maybe you want the pick. Move on. He's done. He's done. he's not a good receiver. Amari Cooper, I keep telling people this too all the time. You want to trick yourself into thinking Amari Cooper is the number one wide receiver because he puts up eight good games at home every year. He is he's not, not. He is not an alpha dog. There are only five, six, maybe seven wide receivers all the time in my head I can think of. You know, Jalen Waddle, Irie Kill, Justin Jefferson, DeAndre Hopkins, Cooper Cup, AJ Brown. You know, Stephon Diggs, I may be missing one or two in there, but those are Even the Allen, Mike one. Williams? And I'm not putting them in the number one category yet, especially because, because of the injuries with, with Keenan Allen and Mike Williams. Mike Williams is more of a jump ball guy. He's not a natural, you know, run all the type of routes guy. Um, I, I do want to ask you, though, speaking of receivers, Josh, I got to tell you, a couple years ago when I was on the air at Black Squirrel Radio, I was screaming, you know, probably my last semester. I said, Miami, you gotta move off Tua. Like, like it, it, it's it's over. We we've seen Tua. He's just he, he's a good passer, he's not great. You're never gonna get to the next level with Tua as your quarterback. But then this year, they go out and they get an offensive-minded coach, which I don't know if you know this or not. I am very pro offensive-minded coach. The the world has changed. I, I, in my opinion, if I was hiring a coach, I would, I would eliminate defensive coaches. I'm not hiring a defensive head coach because if I do get a defensive head coach, 
I'm going to need a great offensive coordinator, and then he's probably going to get a head coaching job, and then I'm screwed anyway. So I really lean offensively in 2022. I think that's one of the reasons why New England's struggling, because they put a defensive coordinator in their offensive play call. Yeah, I have no idea what Belichick was thinking. I have um, no, I, you know, it's crazy, right? People have asked me all the time, how could you criticize Bill Belichick? He's the greatest coach ever. And I'm like, he is the greatest coach ever. But without Tom Brady, he's under 500. They have not had a good offense in three years. Like, you could not win the game anymore on defense and special teams. I have no idea how they even won seven games this year. There's no talent on that football team. But the Dolphins are fascinating to me, man. There is no way. Nobody knew who Mike McDaniel even was six, you know, nine months ago. Here he is with the Dolphins, John. One of those entertaining guys out there. And he's got two of playing at almost an MVP-like level. It's unbelievable. Yeah, but so let me ask you this: Was it Mike McDaniel that turned Tua into this, or was it Tyree Kill? I think it's a combination of both. I think that Mike McDaniel's scheme, his his schematics, I think it helped Tua, but I also think Tyree Kill opening up the offense obviously helps Jalen Waddle, which helps Tua. Like the more weapons you give a quarterback, we've seen it. Buffalo gave to uh, Josh Allen, Stephon Diggs. Kyle Murray, say what you want. He's a different quarterback with DeAndre Hopkins out there versus when he's not out there. Jay would hurt. We've seen the progression of him this year by adding a legit number one wide receiver in A.J. Brown. Like, these quarterbacks need receivers. This isn't rocket science. Like, give quarterbacks weapons and give them a good offensive line. They're going to succeed. Look at Mac Jones last year. Mac Jones had no talent, but we see a Josh McDaniels Josh McDaniels goes out the door. He may not be a great head coach. I can't believe Vegas is as bad as they are. I really like Vegas going into this year. But at least you can see offensively, like, again, for the 10th time this podcast now, the world's changed. Like, understand the rules benefit the offense. Offensive, offensive teams, right? Cincinnati offensive head coach. Kansas City offensive head coach. San Francisco offensive head coach. Philadelphia, Detroit now, Dan Campbell elevating Ben Johnson. We've seen the progression of Jared Goff. Like, there are teams in this league this year that are winning with defense because there's a lot of bad teams. The Jets, the Giants have won eight games because they have an offensive head coach and Brian Dable. Like, I, I don't know. Am I crazy on this stuff? No. And, you know, you were talking about how you think it's a combination of both Mike the Mike McDaniel becoming the head coach in Miami, as well as the acquisition of Tyree Kill. And that just drives home a point I've been, like, screaming about for, like, I, at least two years. That the quarterbacks get way too much of the credit when it comes to league MVP, Super Bowl MVP, all that type of stuff. It's, I feel like it's a very rare thing that a running back, tight end, wide receiver, any of the skill position players win league MVP or Super Bowl MVP. Granted, I know that Julian Edelman won Super Bowl MVP and, and, and Super Cooper Bowl Cup, 50. And Cooper Cup last year, obviously. And Cooper <laughs> Cup last year, I know. But in general, it's always the quarterback. 
Okay, but Josh, I, I get what you're saying. I understand that. But again, the quarterback, like I understand the pieces, the offensive line has to be good, the receivers has to be good. I understand all of that. But they will get all the credit because they are taking, you know, every single snap. And you will see the difference when you have a special quarterback versus when you don't, which is why it's it's very interesting to me that you know, we're going to have quarterbacks this year in the NFC. Daniel Jones, Taylor Heineke. I mean, we're going to have these guys making the postseason. Geno Smith is at a, a, a career revelation even in Seattle. We'll see if they make it or not. But I, I'm very curious to see what happens this offseason in terms of some of these moves. You know, do the Giants stick with Daniel Jones? Does Washington try to go out and get a quarterback? What does Vegas do with Derek Carr? San Francisco, we're seeing Brock Purdy do well. So, again, excuse me, I think it's just going to be a very interesting offseason. Oh, I agree. And trust me, I hear what you're saying about the quarterback taking every snap. So, I understand why they get most of the credit. But it's like, okay, what if, let's, hypothetically, let's put Tyreek Hill back on the Chiefs. Just for the sake of this example. Okay. So let's say Patrick Mahomes throws a pass to Tyreek Hill that was designed to be a 10-yard route, okay? Correct. And Tyreek turns it into a 30-yard play. Who made that play? Was it Tyreek or was it, it Patrick Mahomes? It was Tyreek, yes. There you go. So it's like in that in that type of scenario... People are going to say, oh my god, did you see the throw that Patrick Mahomes made? But it's like, the, okay, it was Tyreek who took the 10-yard route and turned it into a 30-yard game. Why right. is he not getting but, the right credit? Well, the, well, he would get credit for that play, but for the season, this is why. Because take Tua off the Dolphins. Put in their, their backup quarterback, for example. Put in Teddy Bridgewater, Skyler Thompson, whoever they play. Tyreek Hill looked like a different quarterback with a, or a different wide receiver, excuse me, with, with Skyler Thompson, Teddy Bridgewater, compared to when he was with Tua. And then again, part of it is because of the scheme. But quarterback is such a mental game, right? It's snap, get the ball out, boom. And again, offensive-minded coaches understand this. They understand the rules benefit you. Pass interference. You know, whatever you want to say, throw the ball up. Why do you think Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes get away with all of it? Why do you think Aaron Rodgers got got away with it for years? Um, all right, why is it about question for you? Uh, I got to ask you about Brady because I got to tell you, I, I, uh, I can't believe how bad Tampa is. I mean, I really thought going into this year, their biggest offseason addition was adding Todd Bowles and taking away Bruce Arians. I just thought Bruce Arians and Tom's system, they did not work together. Tom, this is the one instance where I thought, okay, a defensive coach is actually an upgrade because Tom, Tom will get to run the offense. <coughs> excuse, excuse me. The way that Tom would like to run it, you know, the short passes and all of that. And I thought they'd be really focused coming off that watch of the Rams. But between the divorce, and then I thought, well, after the divorce, maybe it was going to turn it on. He did for like a quarter against the Rams and a two-minute drive against the Saints. But like Tampa, 
I don't know if it has to do with the mobility now that we have so many quarterbacks that are on the move and Brady kind of feels outdated because he's a pocket guy. Like, I love Tom Brady. Outside of Jalen Hurts right now, there's nobody I'd rather watch than Tom Brady. I mean, I, I, I love watching the go play football. It's one of the reasons why I wish he was still in the AFC so I didn't have to sneak only root for him until he made my team in the postseason and then I'm scared to death. Um, what is your kind of take on Brady? I mean, I look at it and I'm like, San Francisco, excuse me, San Francisco, you know, Vegas, um, you know, one of those teams maybe he goes to. I don't think he's staying in Tampa, that's for sure. Sure. Um, I mean, I feel like this could actually be his final year. I I think there is a strong possibility of that. I mean, we know what happened during the offseason. Like, you know, he had announced his retirement and then like I don't I don't remember the exact so, timeline. So it it was obviously six weeks, but I gotta tell you, it was not a retirement. And I said going into this year, Brady did not want to go back to the Bucks. Brady was done with Bruce Arians. Brady was done with that loosey-goosey culture in Tampa. He actually wanted to go to Miami. The owner was trying to get him and John Payne together in a package, and they were going to move off to Obviously, they got caught with tampering. But Brady has wanted to go back to San Francisco, and the Shanahan's have completely denied him the last two times, which is why he forced himself back to Tampa, and he don't want to be there. Yeah. But whether... That while that might all be true, and I think to a certain extent it is, the fact that whether the retirement was real or not, which I do hear everything you're saying, the fact that he already like flirted with that leads me to believe he he's not there fully mentally. It's just like Aaron Rodgers, right? In Green Bay. I mean, we're seeing obviously he's Devontae Adams left and we know how that consequence is. But you're right. I mean, I don't know. Is he all there? He certainly gets screaming a lot, I'll tell you that. Yeah, and maybe the divorce was part of it. Well, maybe we'll, We probably will never know because I don't think Brady will really talk about that. I wouldn't expect him to. But you never know. He might, He could surprise us and bring it up. But either way, like... Once you, it's kind of like in the UFC, where I know they're two different sports, and so it's very different, like, philosophies and all that. I understand that. But once a fighter starts bringing up the word retirement, like, you know they're, like, halfway out of the octagon. I think it's the same type of thing in the NFL, where once a player... Does, I don't care if you're Tom Brady. I don't care if you're Miles Garrett. You could be the player number 53 on the 53-man roster. Once you mention the word retirement, I feel like you're not all the way like focused on your team, the game you're playing. So, like, I don't know if, like I said, I don't know if Brady's all the way there or not. Josh, I got to ask you, okay? The last time we sat down together on this show was it was right before the most stupendous WrestleMania in history. 
ever since then, a lot has changed in the realm of professional wrestling. One of those changes being somehow the old man is no longer in charge. Thank uh, you very much for that. You're, I mean, what have you made? It certainly has not been perfect. There's been speed bumps all in the way. There's some of the, the, the uh, returns and, you know, that I'm not fully in love with, but kind of your overall assessment of, you know, five, six months here, the Triple H era in WWE. For me, at least, it's been a lot of fun to just watch unfold. Yeah, I feel like we've gotten a lot more, like, more of the feuds that we've wanted to see. We've gotten more creative storylines, because I felt like a lot of times under Vince McMahon, it was just the recycling of storylines we had already seen. And it's like, okay, I want to see, like, Drew McIntyre and Bobby Lashley feud. But it just felt like the same storyline over and over and over again. And I'm just thinking to myself, can't we go in a different direction to make this feud more interesting? Like, I want to, trust me, I want to get invested. But it's like... The storyline's preventing me from getting fully invested. Whereas with Triple H, we're getting, like, fresh new storylines where it's like, oh, this storyline's intriguing to me. Let me keep watching a few episodes and see where it goes. You know, am, am I liking all the storylines? No. Like, personally, I don't really like this whole Miz, Dexter, Loomis, Johnny Gargano thing. I can, but I do appreciate it. You know, um, I'm I'm not ready to make an assessment about the whole Bray Wyatt thing because I think we need to give it time to play out more. Um, I'm I'm straddling the line with the L.A. Knight storyline because I love I really like L.A. Knight. I just. For me, I don't know if it's clicking with Bray Wyatt the way maybe it was intended to. But again, like I'm, I'm still like willing to give that storyline a chance and let it play out and all that. But then there's like feuds where, like, like with damage control, I'm just like, okay, I'm confused. What's the point of this? Like, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is, you know, kind of trial and error in, in, in a way. And I think Triple H, I, I think the one thing that he has sort of failed to do, if you will, is realize that, you know, somebody like me does not watch NXT at all. So I think there, there's a lot of expectation that, you know, the main roster does watch NXT. And a lot of the main roster of people like myself don't watch NXT. Same uh, here. And so being able to, you know, because there's been a lot of callbacks and, you know, references to people in, in their in their NXT days that maybe some of us have not gotten. But I think the biggest change that he has made is no matter what show, usually it's at the start of the show. And yes, before the show sometimes dies down and maybe he gets up to a hot start and finishes cold. But there's always some sort of urgency. There's always some sort of chaos. You know, and there's really good marketing, and they're they're not pushing any uh, anything down our throat. You know, they're building up matches, they're building up stories. I think they've done a really good job, as best as they can, honestly, with Raw. 
you know, with Roman not being there, having the United States Championship be a fixture of the show again, I think it's been a really good change. Um, speaking of Roman, I gotta ask you, because obviously there's this big debate right now going on in, in, in the wrestling community. I, for one, want to see Rock Roman, WrestleMania 39, main event, night two in Hollywood. And I've said this for a long time, and you know that this is my, my philosophy on wrestling. It's not about pleasing the fans, per se. It's not about pleasing the smart guys on the internet. It is about mainstream popular culture. That's what WWE is. WWE is very mainstream. What will put butts in seats? John Cena, The Rock, Roman Reigns, the major stars. Like, a lot of people were against <coughs> Logan Paul and Johnny Knoxville WrestleMania weekend. They ended up arguably having the two most funnest matches on the entire card. So, for me, it's, you gotta think about, how do I market this to make this the biggest match possible? And for me, it's Roman versus Rock. I've seen Roman versus Cody be thrown out there, but I'm also trying to think, like, how are they going to get this belt off Roman? Is it going to be one at a time? Is it going to be both? Who is it going to be? Is it going to be Cody? Is it going to be Zeph? Or where are you at on the whole bloodline thing? I mean, who takes the belt off Roman? I mean, where are you at with all of this? Okay, so first of all, this whole Sami Zayn bloodline thing has been the best storyline in wrestling, in my opinion. It is so good. And you know what's going to ultimately happen? That the Bloodline are going to screw Sami Zayn over, and it will eventually be Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn who get back together and take the belts off the Usos. At least that's the way it looks like it's going. Um, I've personally really enjoyed the Bloodline. My, my biggest complaint, though, is I feel like Every time Roman has a championship defense, it's like, okay, what kind of shenanigans are going to happen to allow Roman to retain his belt this time? You know, at Clash of the Castle, it was the debut of Solo Sokoa. I, you know, at I thought Drew was the one person because it was in the UK. I thought maybe they do a theory swerve where, you know, McIntyre can win the WWE title or something like that. I thought there was a chance they'd take one of the belts off Roman. But, yeah, I mean, again, the hardest part's going to be, like, who is the one and how do we protect Roman? Because, right. uh, I mean, it, it's so hard, right? Because the reign has been so dominant. He's very close to Hulk Hogan. But, like, there, there's some part of being a fan where, like, even if you're the biggest fan of the Bloodline ever, like, I, I really like the Bloodline. But at the same time, when Roman wrestles for the championship, part of me wants to see him lose because I don't, it's going to be unexpected. You know what I mean? Yeah. And here's the thing, too. Like, Roman hasn't been pinned in, like, several, in several hundred it's been, days. It's been over three years. Okay. So, like... I understand why they had the Bloodline win at Survivor Series War Games, but for me, like, you could have pinned Roman there. Like, it wasn't for no. the championship. It, You know, it was a stipulation match. At the time, I thought they were building to a Sheamus versus 
Roman Reigns match. Yeah, I thought too. I didn't know if it was going to be at the Rumble or on SmackDown. It kind of feels like that's now shifted to Kevin Owens. Part of my thinking is like, you know, if if, if Rock, excuse me, if Rock is too busy and he can't do WrestleMania, could they have Sammy win the Rumble? <laughs> that would be pretty funny if they did. Um, I mean, because my my thinking here on this is two twofold. Because number one, everybody last year complained about the both Royal Rumble matches, but the men in particular, even though we all knew Brock Lesnar was going to win anyway, so I don't know why everybody was complaining about it. Was a pretty bad Rumble, yeah, but we all knew the outcome anyway. So, but I think the other thing is like this is going to be Triple H's first Rumble. This is going to be his first WrestleMania. Like, I think he wants to create a major talking point and shock factor somewhere. Yeah, but, you know, going back to, like, my previous point, like, personally, at that Survivor Series War Games premium live event, I would have had Sheamus pin Roman for the win. Like, okay, it doesn't hurt Roman. It, built, it would have built Sheamus up as a legit contender to be like, oh, Sheamus can actually beat Roman and win the championships. No, like, it, it does hurt Roman. And I'm going to explain why. Because of his character. Mm. The, the the only way Roman loses you know, the championship or gets pinned, basically when he loses, that's it. The tribal chief is going away. He cannot be the tribal chief if he falls. Like the bloodline can fall. They could have lost the match. You could have Sammy lose. You could have the Usos lose, but not Roman. When somebody pins Roman, it has to be. I don't care if it's in SmackDown. I don't care if it's in Survivor Series. It has to be for the championship because that illusion has to be that Roman's unstoppable until, right? Boom. One, two, three. Championship gone, and that's the moment. Whoever it is, somebody is going to become a major star. And I do hear you on that. But again, like Survivor Series War Games, it was War Games. There were stipulations. So I don't think it would have hurt Roman in that regard because like, of all the carnage and stuff that happens in a War Games match. But here's my thing. like I've started hearing rumors that Roman will face Cody for one of the championships on night one and then face The Rock for the other championship on night two. And I get it because you, you don't, you want to split up the, the belts and give Raw, like the WWE championship, for example, and you want to give SmackDown the Universal championship. So I understand that. But like, for me, I wouldn't have Cody win the championship. I don't think he needs it. Like, you saw how big of a star he was during his feud with Seth Rollins. I bet you if he were to have a feud with Kevin Owens, that it would be fantastic. So what? A championship is on the line. Who cares? Like, for me, like, I would prefer... You know, you were talking about how, like, a lot of us don't watch NXT. But, like, let's say you, you call up Braun Breaker, the current NXT champion. 
Maybe you give him a couple feuds, and then, and have him win those, and you build him up, and people are like, oh, he could beat Roman. Like, you know, I would prefer something like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, I mean, Cena for a 17 championship even too, like, I don't know if they would go that route. I mean, there's so many different routes they could go. You could even go the route of, like, Jey Uso returning back on the bloodline and him being the one. You know, as I mentioned, you could be Sammy being the one to actually beat Roman for the championship. The, the that would ultimate, be hilarious. The ultimate coronation of Sami Zayn, who, as I mentioned last year, WrestleMania fought Johnny Knoxville and made that match absolutely fucking amazing. Uh, it's it, That match is on my top match of the year list. I'm not saying it's number one, which uh, before this segment will air the show, I already did my WWE Slammy Awards, which they used to do for the year, and that was on my list. Um, but uh, it's just absolutely incredible. It's been an amazing year in wrestling in 2022. A lot is going on behind the scenes, and a lot's going on inside the ring, and I cannot wait for a terrific 2023, Josh. Yeah, same. WWE's doing well. AEW's been fantastic. Um, let me ask you this with AEW. Do you think that M... Do you think that MJF already has a deal in place with AEW? Or do you think, like, this whole, like, yeah, I mean, 2024 thing is legit? So, I think they turned the, the shoot into a work. And I don't know what his situation is, but I gotta tell you, it will be very interesting, and I don't think we will know until January 1st, 2024. I agree but with I, you. But I do think if MJF is a free agent and he leaves, that, and I, by the way, I also think it depends on, because this is going to be a major factor. It's a major factor for WWE too, and I don't want to be talking about this. Both AEW and WWE need to strike new TV deals in the next year. We do not we do not know AEW's future with with Warner Media. It sounds like Tony Khan is a good relationship with TBS, but you never know. Uh if they if they do not get a deal with Turner, I who knows what happens to 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 AEW at that point. We know Turner's downsizing. And for me, it's very interesting to see what WWE gets. You know, does Raw stay in the USA Network? Do they try to go to NBC? Is Triple H going to try to get it back back down to two hours? Will that cost them revenue? There's rumors out there that that NBC Universal wants to try to get SmackDown in pretty much all of WWE programming. So for me, it's going to be a very interesting year because AEW's TV rights is up at the end of 2023. WWE's is up in 2024, but they need to get it locked in, I believe, by the summer of 2023. So I think it all comes down to that. And I think if Tony Khan strikes a huge deal, there's a potential that MJF becomes the face of AEW and gets a deal. If he does not, and it becomes a Cody Rhodes situation, MJF could be WWE bound come January 2024. Yeah, and I am an AEW fan first oh, over WWE. Um, I don't dislike WWE. Like, I still very much enjoy SmackDown. Um, I'm not quite there with Monday Night Raw. It's, Raw has been very shaky for me, but, you know, I, I'm 
definitely become a bigger AEW fan. What I would love to see with AEW is, let's say MJF does leave for for WWE. I want a, to be able to know as an AEW fan like that guys like Jungle Boy, Jack Perry, Ricky Starks, some of these young people are going to be able to maybe not necessarily, you know, get onto the platform that MJF is on, because I get it, MJF's on a completely different platform, but, like, I want to know that there will be people there to fill in the void as best as they can and keep AEW going, you know? That's a good point. Yeah. Like, sometimes I get concerned when it's constantly... Chris Jericho on the show. Brian Danielson on the show. I have nothing against Danielson or Chris Jericho. But, like, I want to see more of Wheeler Yuta on my TV. I'd like to see more of Daniel Garcia. Like, Ricky Starks just had a great mini feud with MJF over the world title. Personally, I would have saved that for, like, full gear or something. But that's just me. Um, but, like, Jack Perry, sure, this feud with Christian Cage has gone on for way too freaking long, but he's become a star during this. So, like, I want to see him continue his momentum. Like I said, I'm a huge Ricky Starks fan. I want to see him. Like, Willow Nightingale, Sky Blue, people, the young people like that. Like, it doesn't feel like AEW develops their young stars enough. It's they're like, oh, we have Claudio Castagnoli, we have Chris Jericho, we have Danielson. Like, I'm just like, okay, the veterans are great, but I want to see some of the young people. And with that, and thank you, Josh, so much. I appreciate it. And with that, we're gonna go ahead and wrap things up for this edition for this interview with Josh Hunger. Thank you, Josh, so much. I appreciate you coming out of there. You want to go and tell your social media stuff real quick? Yeah, so on YouTube, you can follow me um, at Hunger to the Max. So if you would go over and subscribe to my channel, that would be greatly appreciated. On Facebook, I have a couple Facebook pages. You can follow me at, at Hunger to the Max. I also have the Sports Room on Facebook. And then on Instagram, I've got my personal Instagram page, Hunger to the Max. And then I also have the sports room um, Instagram page. And of course, as I, always, as I already said, make sure you check out Josh Unger's In The Land column every single Friday for Believe Media LLC.com. Thank you, Josh, for joining us. And coming up next here on the Brands World Christmas Special, it is time to give you my 2023 predictions in sports. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you have earned my NFL awards for some wonderful Christmas music. You've earned about the WWE Slammy Awards. You have earned about my NFL Week 16 predictions and best bets. You have earned from Josh Unger and Enzo Orlando on the wonderful world of sports. But now it is time to wrap up this Britain's World 2022 Christmas special by talking about my predictions for sports in 2023. NFL-wise... I think you're going to see more leaning towards the the offense 
in terms of the coaching hires. I think you're going to see potentially Frank Wright get back, Matt Nagy from Kansas City, Shane Steichen of the Philadelphia Eagles, you know, uh, Dorsey, Ken Dorsey from the Buffalo Bills. I think those will be kind of your main four offensive guys. I'm not sure if they're all going to get hired, but I think in that group, I think Philadelphia's defensive coordinator, Jonathan Gannon, the Niners' defensive coordinator, D'Amico Ryan is also going to be in that head coaching conversation. But again, I think you're going to see a lean more towards offense. I think part of that will be, I do think the NFL is going to make an adjustment to the rubbing the passer rules. I don't know whether or not it's going to be reviewable or not, but I do think that they are going to make it, you know, not so soft, not so poly. I think that the rubbing the passer calls have been over-officiated this year, and you're going to see it be less officiated in 2023. In terms of Major League Baseball, I do not think the, the uh, new rule changes are going to make that big of a difference besides the shift. I do not think you're going to see that much of a difference in the pitch clock. I don't think it's going to, you know, increase, uh, you know, the speed of the game that much. But I do think this shift is going to cause for a lot more hits, which I think by virtue is going to slow down the game. I don't think it's going to be able to put the ball in play more. I think you are going to see the same amount of foul balls. I don't think that's going to make that much of a difference. But I do think that what will make a difference will again be the shift not being banned. I think you're going to see a lot less outs. And I think you're going to see a lot more scoring in baseball. But as we've talked about for this podcast, baseball needs to market more. Uh, the rules are not going to increase viewership or anything like that or make the game more exciting because baseball specifically does not market their stars. NBA-wise, I think you're going to see what we're already seeing already. There's not going to be this huge world change in basketball in 2023. You know, we know the stars right now. Luka Doncic, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Steph Curry, LeBron James, um, you, you know, Jason Tatum, you can make a case for. Obviously, Devin Booker, you can make a case for. John Moran, you know, we're seeing a lot of even teams. Donovan Mitchell and the Cleveland Cavaliers. We're seeing a lot of even teams in the NBA. I think this is the most even NBA we've seen. I don't think there's going to be a big move in free agency or trade. I do not think Anthony Davis is going to be traded. Brooklyn could potentially blow it up. You know, Kevin Durant and crew could be on, on the move. <coughs> but right now, I just do not see it. Um, and so that's that. <coughs> And so, that's that with the NBA. And then WV-wise, I think you're going to see less premium live events. We've already seen, you know, obviously, uh, you know, no TLC this year, no December pay-per-view, no day one. Uh, you know, Royal Rumble, Elimination Chamber, WrestleMania, I think you're not going to see Extreme Rules. You're not going to see LNSL. You may not see WrestleMania backlash. I think there's going to be some more branding here. I think there's going to be more specific storylines. I think Raw and SmackDown will get more even in terms of the talent. I do think Roman Reigns will eventually lose the WWE Undisputed Championship. And I think he will even lose the Universal Championship in 2023. To whom I don't know yet, but I think you're going to see this more transition to a Triple H like WWE. I think WWE is going to get better under Triple H's leadership. And I think we are in for a hell of a 2023 in wrestling. I think it's going to be just like last year. Maybe with the last drama behind the scenes. 
But I think there's going to be a lot of returns going on. There's going to be a lot of movement. It's going to be the making of Triple H's first full year in the professional wrestling business. Again, don't think a lot is going to change. I think 2022 was a big year in terms of change of teams getting better and rule changes and stars crossing over. Like 2022 was a big year in sports because it was the first full year we've had in sports since 2019, obviously, due to COVID. I think things get back to a more regular basis in 2023. And with that, I thank you so much for listening to the Brandon's World Christmas Special. Merry Christmas, happy holiday from me to you and your family. I hope you all enjoy this wonderful, wonderful special that we have done. And I look forward to talking to you guys in the new year. We will be live on New Year's Eve at around 10 p.m. Eastern. I'll make the official shout-out. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at real underscore B-word, where we will make the announcement. But we will be live on New Year's Eve when we talk about, you know, our 2023 plans for this podcast, as well as recapping 2022. We'll see you then. Merry Christmas. Uh, uh.